to welcome everyone to this week's colloquium at the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's Colloquium. I'm very pleased to uh, announce that this is our, our first colloquium of the semester, and we have a presentation that's been coordinated by the Ag Biofuse students, uh, Agricultural Biotechnology in our Evolving Food, Energy, and Water Systems. Uh, as well as a GES minor students. And so I'm gonna very quickly do the introductions. So we have our three Ag Biofuse fellows from cohort two, um, Asa Budnik from Plant Biology, Modesta Apugu from Horticulture, uh, Nick Lotion from Applied Ecology. And they're also joined by Joseph Gakpo, who is our Genetic Engineering Society uh, minor fellow. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and let you guys take it away. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, just a quick uh, title slide to basically and uh, say thank you for the privilege to attend uh, the UN Biodiversity uh, Convention Bi Biological Diversity Conference in early December. Um, so basically, we went and we attended as it related to our Ag Biofuse cohort project and just kind of as it relates to the GES Center to learn how do these international parties come together and really think about uh, biotechnology on the international scale. And so the question that we kind of asked in the back of our heads was, has the UN Biodiversity Convention been a force for good or bad and how biotech crops are regulated globally? And this is not really something that like we are necessarily able to answer, but it's something that we were just digging into as we were attending um, this convention and something that we kind of asked uh, you guys as well to think about as we reflect on our time where we spent about a week in the cold chilliness of Montreal uh, related to the conference. Uh, so a quick outline of kind of what we want to talk about quickly today is to kind of give you a background to what is uh, the Convention of uh, Biological Di Diversity in the COP15 as it relates to different things such as the Cartagena Protocol and Target 17. And then kind of explaining what does it look like with having these different meetings, different work groups, parties, and delegates. And then something that we kind of struggled uh, to piece together as, I mean, it was constant meetings and constant opportunities to attend different things is really what does this workflow look like for drafting these international policy documents? How do we actually get that final uh, global biodiversity framework uh, that was published right after uh, the convention ended? We also had the opportunity to attend several different side events as it relates to some of our personal interests, but also things that we just thought would be beneficial and seemed very interested and in related to uh, biotechnology as a whole. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about risk assessment, capacity building and technical expertise and then share a little bit about the role academia actually plays uh, on the international scale as it relates uh, to the CBD. And then we go into kind of that bigger question that you know we have as the title of our presentation of whether this has been a force for good or bad in adopting uh, GMOs on a global scale. So we'll begin with um, a quick background of what the United Nations Biodiversity Convention is all about. Um, it's a convention that became effective in 1993, and since then there's been a conference every two years to further deliberate on it and set new targets and all of that. The COVID-19 pandemic has kind of shifted the timelines to a certain extent, but essentially the idea is they would usually meet every two years. The main objective of the convention is to preserve biodiversity 
and subsequent to the convention coming into being back in 1993, there's been two supplementary agreements, the Karajina Protocol, which came into being in 2003, and then there's been the Nagoya Protocol, which was drafted in 2010, but then became effective in 2014. The Karajina Protocol specifically is one of the protocols that interest us very much, because then it has to do with biotechnology and living modified organisms and genetically modified organisms. And the protocol specifically seeks to protect biodiversity from what is described as the potential risks, which are posed by living modified organisms. And with the Karajina protocol, the precautionary principle is actually the fundamental basis of how it's implemented as far as guiding various approvals of biotech crops are concerned. And uh, as we know, the precautionary principle then preaches the kind of situation where in-depth risk assessments are done to then ensure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed before any possible new technology gets introduced in any space. And it's drawn both praise from those who think it's a protective kind of approach and then criticism from those who think that it's vague and self-counseling to a certain extent. And so um, in the light of all this is why we are then asking the question about the role that the Biodiversity Convention and the Karajina Protocol has played as far as approval of biotech crops are concerned. Um, finally, on the bit having to do with the background, this particular conference that we attended, which is the conference that unfolded in Montreal, the COP15, the biggest issue that was deliberated on had to do with approval of what is described as the post-2020 biodiversity framework, which is actually a new global framework for managing nature till 2030. And the conference eventually agreed on four overarching goals and 23 targets known as the Cumin Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. And in the deliberations on the 23 targets, target 17 was particularly contentious because then it focused specifically on biotechnology. And there was an initial draft of that from 2020, which then said that the target 17 actually seeks to create a situation where there will be the establishment and the strengthening of capacity for the implementation of measures to then prevent, manage, or control potential adverse impacts of biotechnology on biodiversity and human health, and also to then reduce the risk of this impact. Um, that drew a lot of deliberation and eventually consensus had to be built on a restructuring of that particular target to then say the target will then aim at establishing and also strengthening capacity to then ensure that various appropriate measures are in place to then meet the requirements as are contained in Article 8 and Article 19 of the Biodiversity Convention. And this was seen as a more neutral language that then all the parties could then build consensus on because the uh, countries that had biotech crops approved were then worried about a target that then refers to risks and preventing adverse impact as far as biotechnology is concerned. So um, like Nick men mentioned, most of the time we spent on the conference was um, attending plenaries and side events. And what we noticed during each of the events was that there is always a document that people were reviewing or uh, making statements about. So we started to ask the question, where is this document even coming from? I believe um, people in this uh, 
uh, room might know better than we do, but we 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 wanted to know who drafts all of these policies that are being reviewed, who amends them, who approves it, and how is it even implemented uh, when they go back to their respective countries. So from the questions that we asked uh, some of the delegates, we got to learn that, first of all, um, there is a committee that is being set up at a regional and uh, geographical level called the ATEC Committee. They consist of um, representatives from indigenous communities, women, um, different stakeholders who are really not experts in drafting any of these policies. So the ATEC group makes the first draft based on the biodiversity um, challenge or framework they are trying to review. And then this uh, first draft is being submitted to the CBD system. And when they submit it, the parties who are already more experienced in drafting this um, kind of documents makes reviews and changes to whatever the ATEC group has provided. Then after the parties have made this review, they forward it to the secretariat. And that is when the secretariat now makes it an agenda item for it to be discussed during the Convention on Biological Diversity um, um, Conference. So during the discussion, and this was the part where we got to take part in, we, we got to see how parties will make edits or make changes based on what's applicable to them and what's not. Um, and after all of these changes are made, it's been assigned to a technical group. It, um, a, a contact working group and the contact working group then reviews all of the changes that have been made, reviews all, all of the inputs uh, by delegates. Then they come back to another technical working session and it's being reviewed and approved uh, by the secretariat. So afterwards, the, this becomes a policy or this becomes a draft guideline, which is then adopted by the signatory countries and they go back to their respective countries to apply it in their country's specific context. So um, we got to experience how this, some of these documents were reviewed um, or how they are being applied in different areas during the side events that we attended. So there were lots of side events at the, at, the works, at the convention, but we wanted to highlight just five main side events that touched upon what we are really interested in at the GES Center. So and one of the side events is the digital sequence information. So um, this, this DSI is really a policy that kind of helps to set up digital resources on all, all of the genomic sequences, all of the genomic sequence data that is being generated from people all over the world, setting up the, these digital resources that can help in access in for other people to be able to access it. So during the convention, there was two side events on DSI. One was uh, targeting the application of DSI among scientists in the CJRO centers. And the other was to analyze the policy options under uh, the Convention of Biological Diversity. So one thing that resonated during the, 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 the side events on how scientists are using DSI resources to improve crops there were a couple of presentations from breeders um, that talked about all of the databases that they have set up in their breeding program and all of the tools, all of the resources that have been generated from genomic sequence information. But what they really came out for, especially for scientists um, who are working in developing countries, was that they need open access to this DSI information so that everyone can benefit uh, equally in making use of these genomic resources. 
And in trying to discuss how to share share benefits or how to develop resources for this open access infrastructure, they suggested that parties who use or who generate these digital resources could actually provide payments that can allow for it to be used commercially. And then the, the benefits that will accru be accrued from these will be shared equally by partners. Um, but then they will provide a level playing field for the uh, partners in developing country. So at the end of the convention, after the policy um, analysis and evaluation, there was a, a new global biodiversity fund was set up to generate about $5 billion annually from companies that use DSI. And this, um, this cost will be used, uh, this cost will, will total, I think, about $700 billion by the end of 2050. And they would use it to equally uh, create access to these digital resources for all parties. The other side event that we participated in is the one on LMOs. They call these LMOs, but they are really re referring to GMOs. So the the role of locally developed LMOs in um, so attaining achieving the goals of the sustainable development um, the sustainable development goals. So in this side event, it was co-organized by the Alliance for Science, and they had five speakers uh, representing delegation from Argentina, Kenya, Nigeria, Brazil, and Bangladesh. And during this side event, most of the conversation that happened was, uh, was the scientists there present talked about the research that they've been doing on developing specific GMO crops using case studies from Argentina, uh, wheat in Kenya was a cassava, Nigeria was cowpea. Brazil was also uh, cowpea and Bangladesh was uh, brinjal. So they talked about how GMOs have provided a source of resistance um, to these staple crops and how it's increasing productivity due to this uh, reduced loss to diseases. Then they also discussed how the risk assessment process goes through from um, confined field trials, environmental trials to approval and even to commercial release. And they also included some components of public engagement programs, stakeholder outreach events that they do they did in order to uh, promote the understanding of the process that they are going through in terms of developing and approving this crop. Then another thing that resonated from this side event was that the Katahina Protocol has been very useful in facilitating the adoption of this biotech crop, especially in the aspects where they share um, they, they they build capacity from what other parties, developing developed countries have, have done in terms of implementing this protocol. We also attended another side event that was focused on living modified organisms, as well as NGTs or new genomic techniques, which is the UN language that describes uh, genetic alteration of organisms outside of the traditional uh, GMO technologies. So that would include gene editing with CRISPR-Cas. So NGTs are currently regulated differently across member countries. The EU considers them to be LMOs in every case, whereas other countries such as Brazil do not necessarily consider an NGT to be an LMO. And this asymmetric regulation creates potential problems for trade where the EU wants to have decisive labeling, tracking, and monitoring over 
all NGTs and Brazil doesn't necessarily practice that or want to build the infrastructure for that. Um, so this side event was composed of a panel of speakers which represented regulatory advocacy and scientific disciplines and had members from Austria, Brazil, Kenya, and Nigeria. And the core of the discussion was kind of around concerns for farmer choice, organic markets, and unintended consequences of NGTs that could be being traded without clear and decisive and like unified authorization and regulatory systems. And the main consensus in the room that formed was that information sharing is core to the detection, regulation, and monitoring of these crops. But there wasn't good consensus on what that information sharing should look like or how the mechanism for that should be. So part of the discussion was whether there should be like mandatory uh, disclosures and labeling of all NGTs across the signatories. Um, but that conversation can't go very far within the context of a side event. Um, yeah, and then the other side event that I attended that I really wanted to highlight was on agroecology. Here, the context of the conversation was around advocating for stronger and more specific language. Um, so including agroecology specifically, and that's important because other alternative wording such as sustainable agriculture can include practices that are essentially industrialized monoculture using less harmful pesticides. Um, so the group of speakers in this room felt very strongly that agroecology needed to be highlighted specifically in order to advance biodiversity goals. Um, the speakers in the room were 11 speakers from different organizations, mostly focused on seed sovereignty, indigenous rights, food biodiversity, and farmers' rights. And many of them were practicing agroecology in their lives as well. Um, one of the things that I also want to focus on was that there was a prevailing view that industrial agriculture and biotech were fundamentally opposed to agroecology principles. So, this idea again that organic or agroecology practices are mutually exclusive with uh, genetic interventions and biotechnology. Um, and then there was another idea in the room that the core of agroecology and how it can succeed is to scale out and has to rely on local knowledge and local action. So more farmers rather than bigger farms and bottom up rather than top down, which kind of, ex there was a clash a little bit between that idea and the venue being the UN where obviously it's a pretty top-down policy that's going to come out of this process. One of the biggest focuses uh, that, you know, was going on during the entire convention for the week that we were there was centered around risk assessment, which I took a pretty personal interest in as it relates very heavily to uh, my PhD research. And Modesta kind of talked about, you know, what did that process look like of what were we able to attend as to like see these documentations and to see like what do these different parties on an international scale care about as it relates uh, to risk assessment. So we didn't obviously like we could not attend like the ad hoc technical group that was put together and formulated uh, by the speaker on risk assessment that kind of did the initial documentation. Uh, but we were able to attend different working groups and things like that. So they were really discussing the process for horizon scanning, assessment, and monitoring. And 
what does that look like having like a global framework versus maybe like regional frameworks this was constant debate um we didn't see necessarily in the first week it was mainly debates and conversations over the documentation right around the time we left is really when the consensus and the global biodiversity framework was formulated so talking to one of my other colleagues that also attended dr willie way uh it seems like the there was a lack of consensus on how to kind of incorporate this risk assessment. And you saw that when Joseph was kind of talking about like, this was the wording that we had in the initial draft that was really focused on risk assessment and safety and different things like that. And they kind of went with the consensus of biosafety as a term to use. And I mean, these type of conversations, uh, the working groups, we actually went and I think I dragged Asa and Modesta with me late uh, one night because these working groups were happening at like seven o'clock at night and going until about 10 after like a full day of like plenaries and other conversations. And we were watching people or watching the parties discuss different things. And the thing that we were able to probably witness for about an hour and a half were conversations over when you start to do risk assessment, what type of like experts do you want? How many people should be in a group? And it took, like I'm saying, like probably over an hour and a half just to get a consensus on a couple, like a page and a half of the documentation out of like 14 pages of like, I want five experts and I want uh, six experts. So just this back and forth that was very interesting to see, but also like from 7 to 10 p.m., like quite, quite, I, I don't know, it just really kind of elucidated uh, that process. Um and so I actually got to attend a side event that was focused on risk assessment biotechnology uh, in Africa as a whole. Uh, and so there were several different speakers from several different countries that kind of talked about what does risk assessment uh, look like and what are the needs um, for these various countries. So it kind of took the bigger conversation that the was happening by several different parties and kind of honed it in a little bit. And so there was this balancing act of like this need for qualitative and quantitative tools across uh, the continent to kind of better understand the risk as it relates to biotechnology. However, there's still huge variations across the continent on how to best implement risk assessment and actually assess the risk of uh, these different biotech, um, I guess, uh, technologies. I was like, depending on political views and regulations and policies and expertise, uh, there's quite the need or there was quite the push for possibly like a case-by-case -case evaluation for risk assessment rather than an overarching global uh, framework. And the big ask that was kind of how do we best like assist and like what was the needs of several of these stakeholders that spoke was the idea of like enabling more policy related to it, uh, functional regulatory systems, social acceptance. I was like there still is like the very strong anti-GMO uh, pushes across the continent, and then regional and multilateral cooperation. And then another conversation that was kind of the case study that I would say was talked about very heavily throughout um, the two weeks of the convention, especially as it relates to uh, risk assessment, was centered around gene drives. So there was actually another ad hoc technical expert group, and this one was focused on synthetic biology, which I think under our impression pretty much encapsulated all of biotechnology. Uh, but it was an important topic, like I was saying, across the two weeks, and it was something that was hotly debated in several side events. Not something that I, I really saw in any of the working groups, but there were some very passionate parties uh, when it came to talking about the concerns related to uh, gene drives. 
And I believe, again, talking to my colleague, Dr. Willoway, um, the COP15 basically called for a consideration of uncertainty and taking the precautionary approach when it comes to the idea of like implement, <laughs> implementing and utilizing uh, gene drives as a technology. And specifically, I also wanted to talk about that because uh, gene drives are a pretty in-house uh, focus for several of our researchers here in the GES Center. And I mean, we even just had a workshop in June of, or I guess over the summer that was actually focused around gene drives. So it was cool to kind of see what we did and then what does that actually look like on the international scale? So um, talking about the role of academia and researchers um, in COP15, uh, it's been for the past number of years that this event has been held. There has never been a representation of academia and researchers as a major stakeholder group. So um, what happens during the plenary is that stakeholders, major stakeholders are being called upon to read their statements with regards to a specific issue being discussed, say biosafety, uh, biodiversity conservation. So, but never for once have they have people from research institutions or academia or universities come, come up to make a statement. But in 2021, during the last COP, uh, there was a caucus set up, which consists, consists of about 150 registered um, academic research institution. So during that caucus, they agreed that they would make the first statements at the plenary in this COP, in COP15. And we worked, um, did a couple of meetings, and they agreed on setting up a particular document that reflected the idea the, the, or what academic institutions will stand for. And one thing that resonated with the members in this group was that when we are talking about efforts to you know, conserve biodiversity, all of these efforts should really focus um, and take a, a, an approach that is based on science. And, and also based on evidence. So I was actually honored to be one of, one of those people that read this statement for the first time as, at plenary. But the take home message from this experience was that we really as academia need to step up and make our voices heard at this very big um, platforms and convention. So we're almost on the half hour mark. I think we have like four or five slides to go and then we would round it up and probably open it up for questions. Uh, but we will now try answering the question about the role that the CBD has played when it comes to approval of biotech crops globally as we've um, seen over the years. Um, the CBD and specifically the Karajina Protocol seeks to contribute to ensuring adequate level of protection when it comes to the transfer and the handling of LMOs resulting from modern biotechnology, and also then try to avoid situations having to do with the adverse effects of some of these technologies on biodiversity generally and human health specifically. And the Karajina Protocol focuses heavily on the transboundary movements of living modified organisms, as is the objective as has been laid out. And what we've seen over the years has been that various countries have adopted this um, Karajina protocol, then uh, having to then domesticate it as far as their various regulations are concerned. Um, it then allows for situations where countries will establish specific national frameworks when it comes to approval of 
living modified organisms and allowing for importation and all. It then also allows for a situation where countries that don't have domestic regulatory frameworks may adopt a risk assessment framework as has been laid out in the protocol itself. And again, countries are then expected to ensure that once they are signed onto the protocol, they take the necessary steps to reduce the effect of uh, by you know biotechnology on human health and biodiversity um, specifically. Uh, not just that, the protocol then sets up the processes to then allow for the approval of transboundary movement of uh, biotech crops. It then sets up the biosafety clearinghouse where information on LMOs could then be lodged when it comes to approval processes and approved crops and all. And then parties are also expected to ensure that when it comes to various approvals, they observe the various biotech crops over the necessary life cycle duration of the crops before then approvals are done. And that's allegedly has then contributed to the long draft processes when it comes to approval of GMO crops in some parts of the world because of this requirement that observation has to be done over the full lifespan of the crop, even if approval has been given for it in other parts of the world. Um, so th that's the role that the protocol has played generally when it comes to approval of uh, GM crops world over. Um, one other observation that we made from our research was that when it comes to the Convention on Biodiversity specifically, 196 countries have actually ratified it, except the United States, which is the only United Nations member which hasn't ratified the CBD. But then when it comes to the Karajina Protocol, which is a supplementary protocol, we have a situation where 173 countries only have actually ratified it. So then we've seen situations where a number of countries like Argentina, Australia, Canada, Chile, um, South Sudan, and the USA have gone ahead and not ratified the protocol, but then they are growing GMOs. And the South Africa example, for example, is an interesting one because then they've been growing GMOs since 1997. And then they then the protocol wasn't existent. They eventually ratified the protocol in 2012, and they still continue to grow GMOs. When we attended one of the side events that was organized by ISA, one of the GMO organizations that participated in this forum, um, these regulators participated in the session from Sudan, from Ghana, from Malawi, and also from Kenya. And they shared a number of very interesting thoughts when they appeared at those sessions. Um, for example, when you look at the regulator from uh, Sudan, she made the point that 100% of farmers are growing GM cotton in that country. They ratified the Karajina Protocol back in 2005. Uh, they had a situation where the first GM crop that was then released in 2019, because then they had to go through the painstaking process of going according to the protocol to the very latter. Um, there was also the experience that was shared by the regulator from Malawi who made the point that there was a time when they had a food crisis in that country and they had to then get a donation of GMAs, but they didn't have the legal framework in place to then allow for the importation. They hadn't ratified the protocol. And so then they had to then rush to ratify the protocol and set the 
legal regulatory framework in place so that going into the future, they will then allow for the importation of GMOs. Um, and then the experience was also shared by the Ghana regulator, Eric Okori, who is the CEO of the Biosafety Authority, who made the point that Ghana ratified the protocol in 2003. It took them about 10 years before a Biosafety Act was approved in 2011. And then Ghana eventually approved its first gem crop in 2020. So then we had a situation where even after the ratification of the protocol, they had to go through the very painstaking process of what it requires. And it took them 20 years before then they had the first GM crop out there for farmers to make use of. So in trying to answer the question about whether the Convention on Biodiversity and the subsequent Karijina protocol has been a force for good or bad when it comes to the approval of GMOs, um, there is no clear answer. It's been a mixed bag situation where some countries are growing GMOs without ratifying the Karijina protocol. Some countries rejected GMOs even in difficult times because they hadn't ratified the protocol. Some countries started growing GMOs before the protocol actually came into being. And some like South Africa subsequently ratified it. Some like the USA have not ratified it. Both are doing okay when it comes to the growing of GMOs. And countries like Russia have refused to ratify the Karijina Protocol, although they ratified the Convention on Biodiversity and made the non-ratification of the Karijina Protocol as one of the bases to then ban GMOs completely. So there is no straight answer to this question, and we welcome the thoughts of all of you on that. So while while we 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 are going to open this to discussion for everyone in the group, but we also wanted to share some thoughts from some of the attendees that we met during the convention. We actually asked a couple of them questions on what they think about the convention, how the UN CBD has influenced the adoption of GM crops in their respective countries, and we got a mixed um, kind of reaction. Some people said they have all the capacity that they need to adopt this uh, technology, but um, funding has been a challenge for them. And there's also been this takeaway that even though that we are all talking about GMOs at the moment, when we are talking about gene-edited technology, regulation should not be as strict as it is with GMOs. A couple of people had some opinion that, you know, all of this convention, all of the deliberation that are being made is just a trail of paperwork because when they go back to their respective country, they just do what works for them. So we are just doing, you know, making deliberations that are just for official uh, reasons and not really practical. Uh, practical. Then we also got the feel of the academia, the members of academia and researchers that are in the in the convention, and how much they are interested in being carried along in all of these conversations around this technology. Yeah, and we also heard some statements that were in the context of globalized industrial agriculture and the way that these uh, crops are developed. There was the perspective that most of these crops are being developed from big multinational corporations. Um, we also heard the statement that Africa has been the target of uh, biotechnology that has been developed elsewhere. Um, and then there was also the statement in one of the side events uh, that I think some of us in the room are ready to admit that capitalism is the problem. And that was pointing to the sentiment that 
a lot of the format of the cop was built around specific subsets of issues, but they felt that it didn't actually get at the root cause of a lot of these issues, uh, which they felt was our global economic system. So a few thoughts from us to kind of close the conversation. We saw that at the deliberations, whole continents took positions on things like the negotiations around Target 17, the African continent being one of those examples led by one of the African Union arms. And so then we, 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 we think that maybe even pre the COP, we could have situations where various continents that have similar interests could then have smaller fora and hold various regional and sub-regional deliberations before the main COP that then happens every two years. So that then those sub-regional deliberations don't end up happening at the venue of the COP itself, as we saw happen in Montreal with regards to some of the specifics. Um, we also saw that just maybe there could be a firmer role for academia in the various negotiations, even beyond the statements that folks like Modesta did during this year's COP for the last year's COP for the very first time from the academia perspective. And uh, we again observe that it took almost three years to then negotiate this post-2020 biodiversity framework. Implementation should have begun in 2020, but it's taken almost three years. And now, um, instead of a 10-year implementation period up until 2030, it will be implemented over a seven-year period. We know that COVID played a role in that, but the drug negotiations also played a role in that. So then we thought just maybe there could be proper ways around the negotiations so consensus is built so these agreements could be reached quickly. Um, those are some of the quick thoughts that we have based on what we observed from the sessions. That was a really nice presentation. Thank you, guys. Um, so now we'll move into the discussion. Um, I'll I'll start with a question. So y'all spent not very long um, there, just a few days, but you came back with a lot of information and you've, you've, you know, generously shared it with us and you had your perspectives, but what was one thing personally that you got out of it that um, you were surprised to have gotten out of the experience? Um, I can answer that for myself. Uh, I will, I don't know, we, it felt like a long visit. And part of that was due to the intensity of the days. Um, a day would normally start with the plenary at about 10, and then it would go until about 10pm, uh, typically ending with like, one of the working groups. Um, so they were, they were pretty intense days, which I think is why we had so many different pieces of uh, perspectives or narratives, but it was hard to kind of collect everything into one central thought. And that reflects on what I gained from it, which was that it is a very like procedural and ordered process at the top level, but really once you're attending in person, it's it's pretty chaotic. And there's a lot of intermixing and a lot of the, uh, 
the the decision making process or the communication process is happening outside of the formal events and is happening in other avenues of communication and or has happened in the intervening years before like before the conference um so yeah i think that was part of my perspective that was surprising is that even though it's seems too rigid to be flexible in addressing specific issues it also is not formalized enough to be transparent in the process of how it's actually working um and i think that was ultimately a little disappointing for me personally Well, for me personally, the intensity of the conversations was something that I found a little surprising to a certain extent. I, I had the opportunity of attending the COP back in 2018 in Sharm sheikh Egypt. And then I attended as a journalist looking out for the big stories that are unfolding and essentially reporting on that. So then you had kind of a specific focus, look out for good stories and report on this time around, showing up more as um, an observer, as someone um, doing a bit of research to then come up with details to then have conversations about subsequently, then gave me a bigger sense that you are kind of moving into conversations and approaching deliberations, um, looking for something that you haven't fixated your mind on earlier. And this time around, it felt a bit more overwhelming than when I had to then attend events and participate in the process back in 2018. So for me, that was a bit of the surprising bit. I knew this was intense and there was a lot to then see, but it felt a bit more intense this time around. Uh, on my own part was the experience of reading a statement at the plenary for the first time. Um, it was nerve wracking and it, for the first, it kind of felt like a scenario of me being a congresswoman. So um, there, there, there was a lot of, you know, politics to get in your, getting to make your statements read. And a couple of the people who set up the academia research caucus actually did a lot of background work in facilitating that. But those kind of environments could also be politically charged in some ways. Like we saw a case and a scenario where some activist group during the plenary came up and started protesting uh, at the plenary and they had all of their placards and everything. Um, eventually, the president of Canada had their request and committed some funds to, um, they, were, uh, they were, I think you were talking about climate change and how the ind indigenous communities are being overlooked in the fight in those efforts to mitigate climate change. So the, the president of Canada actually committed some funds for them, but those environments can as well be politically charged. It's not like the type of environment where we get to have one-on-one -on -one and you know conversations as academia. It's a whole different um, environment, and it was great just getting to get a feel of all of those kind of discussions. I'd say I, I share a sentiment with like what pretty much everyone else said. I mean, <clears throat> instantly get, getting there, it felt like a fire hose. Of information like relatively like overwhelming and it's like oh my god I don't even know like <clears throat> where I'm supposed to go next like plenary or like work group like where am I here like what am I trying to focus on I felt like like I needed like a year of preparation to like best like understand what was going to happen over these quick two weeks 
Um, but it really did show kind of the complexity of like taking these issues centered around biotechnology and then putting them on the international scale. <clears throat> I was like, I think that's something that we talk about in our Ag Biofuse cohort as we think about governance as it relates to biotechnology. But uh, this has me a little bit nervous about taking that on the international scale because it just adds so many different layers and components that are quite challenging to address. And then I don't know like how I feel afterwards. I was like, to be completely transparent, like I don't know if I viewed like those two weeks is like in the global uh, biodiversity framework is a success or like if there's gaps, like I still need time to, I think, kind of process that and talk to other people. So that was kind of overwhelming as well. But overall, that was just extremely like uh, amazing opportunity that, you know, I, I learned quite a lot. And I was like, if it happens again, I was like, I feel like I will definitely be better prepared. But with dealing with like 9,000 different people that are coming in and out of the building and trying to figure out who to talk to and stuff is quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that it would be very overwhelming. It sounds like, I mean, just listening to you talk was a, an incredible amount of information. So, um, okay. So I think that uh, Kara has a question. Kara, would you like to ask it? Sure. It's kind of like a, a discussion point or like a reflection question. Okay, so I was um, listening to your wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. And, you know, following up on this discussion about equity and power dynamics and the organizational aspects, you know, getting over, you know, um, would you say, Nick, uh, just like drinking from a fire hose or something like this and figuring out, you know, where to go. Okay. And then in my mind, there's one thing that I keep really struggling with is like after two, two and a half years of being a virtual society or a set of societies where we've all, you know, we're in, in Zoom for so long, then there's this transition back to in-person meetings. And I, I get that. I think there's so much value in person conversations and connections, but the sustainability part of it really eats away at me. Like, is this the way we should be doing things, right? As we move forward, should we have hundreds or thousands of people flying across the globe to talk about sustainability issues? I, I feel like after years of doing things via Zoom, it shouldn't, couldn't there be a better way? Shouldn't we think more broadly about using virtual platforms to have conversations, to have negotiations, would this also offset some power dynamics or other things, you know, could NGOs or indigenous communities have a space at the table more readily through some virtual platforms? I don't know, I'm just rethinking, I, I know that's obviously much above my pay grade, but kind of rethinking about like, is this the way we should be doing international negotiations, flying people around the world to have a meeting? So I just wanted to hear your perspectives on that. Is there a better way? I I, I think I did. I was like, it, it was, it, it did feel almost like we were a disturbance in Montreal at some points. I was like, I mean, they probably upped the police force by, I don't know, like hundreds and like, I don't know. I we, Asa and I even have the opportunity to talk to some of the locals that live there and they're like, yeah, like I can't even like bike or get anywhere. Like we were definitely like with that amount of people and whatnot, it was quite like, I don't know, it, it was great, but it also felt like we were a disturbance, but it also allowed the opportunity where we watched a couple of peaceful protests that also occurred. But I think most importantly, like, I mean, there were the opportunities to 
attend and like look at the plenary like virtually through I think YouTube and different things where they were live streaming it. But as I think we've kind of talked about getting into the weeds of it, it felt like the important conversations didn't happen at the plenary. Like they were these side conversations that you were trying to have. Uh, and not that it would be possible to attend all of those, but from my perspective, I don't think it's necessarily the most effective way to go about it. But I think if you do go the virtual route, you lose the potential for like all of those side conversations that are occurring. Yeah, I'll chime in and definitely say that I have been pretty thoroughly unimpressed with the CBD's digital resources. Um, they were there was some good material for the conference attendance itself, but trying to find information about the organization, the conference, the structure of things before, after, and during was always very difficult. Um, trying to find the documents that were being referenced in the meetings that we were in was very difficult. So yeah, definitely tons of structural improvements should be made. I also think that in a way the structure is potentially intentional. I mean, the, the contact working groups that we attended were from 7.30 to 10 p.m. and sometimes 40 pages of bracketed documentation had to be gone through. And that doesn't allow time for a thorough and complete discussion over every point. They're really motivating people with the idea that, hey, if you finish this document, you can go home before 10 p.m. <laughs> and they're really trying to like remove brackets and finish one completed version rather than uh, arriving at final and complete consensus from what I saw and experienced. So I might be overreaching there. Okay, um, unless Modesta and Joseph have something to add, there's a question in the chat from Amaja, and it is, are there any procedural exceptions in the works for addressing cases of crisis, such as food shortages or unexpected natural hazards that occur forcing a country to need a speedier ratification to accept GMO crops? So I could answer that briefly so the requirements that are contained in the Karajina protocol make the point that if there is a country that's not ratify the protocol and they would want to undertake any approval processes relating to GMOs and they need to undertake any risk assessment procedure um, a provision is made for that in the protocol where they could just jump on that and go ahead and make use of that risk assessment procedures containing the protocol. So then it wouldn't be a speedy ratification of the protocol, but it makes provision for how countries could go about taking decisions on GMOs, even if they've not signed on or ratified the protocol. And so then when countries have those emergency situations based on what the nation wants to do, whether they would want to stay away from GMOs or probably go ahead and adopt it, if they decide to then allow them in, they can make use of portions of the protocol to then allow that in in a speedy manner without necessarily ratifying the protocol. Great, thank you. Um, okay, Kent Nadozi, I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, has a question. So if you'd like to unmute um, yourself, you may ask your question. Yeah, thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got um, yeah, you're close enough to, to the pronunciation of my surname. It's good. 
Joe for the first time. Uh, yes, my name is Kent Nadazia. I work with um, the FAO International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. And I've worked uh, there uh, in international convention secretariats for over 20 years, and I followed the work of um, just for a long time as well. So I'm quite impressed with the um, perspectives of the students who attended the COP. Uh, at least uh, being there for the first time. Uh, and I've been in the process for, for quite a long time. Um, my intervention, I, I mean, I was supposed to just observe and see what's uh, going on, but my intervention uh, comes from the observation by Cara about sustainability of the whole process. You know, this is an ongoing dilemma for, for us in, in the UN system about how you deal with that. We essentially appear to be speaking from both sides of our mouth. We'll talk about sustainability, but at the same time, we organize these jamborees that uh, eat up a lot of resources and emit huge and you know, thousands of tons of um, CO2 and, and use up resources in, in the process of doing that. But the thing is, it's, it's a reality of the situation we're, we're in that um, invariably to make progress, there are trade-offs that you need to make. Uh, and then you also take into account all the asymmetries of resources and the capacities globally. Invariably, uh, you, you, I mean, you can say, okay, you can, go use digital platforms to, to do these negotiations. But unfortunately, there are major stakeholders in, in, in uh, and, um, and decision makers and, and um, who have, who are not able to participate at that level. They don't have the resources and they don't have the infrastructure to participate and contribute effectively in, in, in that scenario. So the only way you can, you know, make progress is to bring them together. And a lot of times, I mean, being human beings as well, uh, we're social beings, a lot of time, the times, the only way you can make really effective agreement and understanding of each other is when you're face-to-face -face and talking physically uh, in, in, in presence with each other. So that's some of the trade-offs that we need to, to make in being able to, you know, to make progress in both conserving, um, protecting, and also making progress. Uh, at the same time. So while um, he, you know, responding to that, I might also use the opportunity to yeah, make a few comments on some of the, well, the presentations and um, uh, uh, some of the reflections from the students on this. But first, on the, in, 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 when it comes to international negotiations and uh, agreements and how they come out, a lot of times it is baffling to those who are not part of the process. They don't come out as, logical or rational in any way and in any sense. But the, the reality is that in international negotiations, you get what you negotiate, not what you deserve or what is proper and right and should be done. Because there are lots of competing interests. So the issues of asymmetry of power and capacity comes into play. So it is those who have the resources to provide or to undertake research, you know, provides uh, people who come to the negotiating table and have the knowledge and the ability to negotiate that determine the outcomes in the, in the end. So that is one thing you need to look at and, and take into account. And as Nicholas was talking about chaos in the, in the process, yes, apparently it is chaotic, but at the same time there's some order in that chaos, but there are rules of engagement that underpin uh, that the entire processes. 
whereby you know parties are given the opportunity, stakeholders are given the opportunity to to intervene, to provide inputs, and there are a whole lot of procedures that lead up to you know what you see. As for instance, when you were at uh, Montreal, so the processes had been going on for several years in small groups, in regional meetings, in the secretariat, expert groups, and other things that that feed into that final. Um, process and, and, the, and the final congress that that, that uh, is a conference of parties because essentially it, it is not going to be efficient to have you know 192 countries debating every single detail from the start definitions you know you know little inputs you know perspective and things like that so all that work you know are done prior to coming together so that once the technical inputs are made at the earlier stages what happens to the cops themselves you know a lot of that is mostly political, and the and the, comp, the, comp, the competition of national and regional as well as sectoral interests. And, and um, one um, aspect that you had not looked at when you were considering, because you probably were overwhelmed with the entire you know, situation there, is uh, some of the socio-economic, ecological, and ethical aspects of the issues that you were you know, dealing with. Uh, those are somehow not really obvious when you follow the processes and the conference of parties, for instance. Uh, so, but those are things that are continually there in the background and that needs to be continuously considered. Uh, you touched on a little bit on the issue of uh, the capitalism and the fact that um, uh, corporate entities and interests, you know, really take precedence in a lot of the cases. But under that, you see there are a lot of um, issues of ethics and, you know, and, and commerce and and um, and social issues that uh, also uh, come into in, into play. So in in summary, though, um, yeah, I'm a bit um. um was, can, can, we are actually at time. Can you do a that's very all right? No, I'm just summarizing. I said all right. So just a few okay, scattered, scattered thoughts that came in from from. I didn't intend to to you know to go too long into all that discussion. Probably to take a full presentation or lecture to to go over them. But anyway, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your unique perspectives. I think I think they were um, you know, it was really nice to hear your input from a different perspective of in the process. Um, okay, and with that, we are out of time. So help me thank the students for their um, you know, very detailed presentation. And I just want to remind everyone that we will meet again virtually next week to hear from another student group about their um, trip to the 4S conference. Um, so join us again and thank you students. Very nice job. Um, everyone have a good week. Thank you.